0: Welcome to This Week in the Warner Archive Collection, where we discuss our newest releases. I'm George Feltenstein, and I'm proud to be joined by my colleagues Matt Patterson and D.W. Ferranti. Today, the Warner Archive Collection podcast celebrates the release of Season 1 of Alice, the hit television sitcom that ran for nine seasons on CBS from Warner Brothers Television, and we're proud to be bringing the first complete season, season one, to DVD for the very first time, and we're also bringing you six, count them, six MGM comedies starring the one and only Red Skelton. I dood it! You dood it indeed. So the laughs are on us for this whack podcast, and joining us telephonically from the East Coast is our colleague Matt Patterson, who's high atop some unknown Warner Brothers location.
1: There is the Time Warner Center. I'm not atop of that. I'm atop of a building around the corner in the back that's unlabeled, so no one can find me. Is there okay. a small
2: woman in your palm? Shh.
1: <laughs> you don't want to know. Stay
0: away from the remote-controlled drones. So, Dan, why don't you start us off and... In- Tell us a little bit about Alice. Uh, Alice, starring
2: Linda Lavin, premiered uh, in 1976, the year of the bicentennial, which I know well, having been birthed in Lexington, Massachusetts, but that's not important. Alice was spun off, interestingly enough, from uh, Martin Scorsese's Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, which netted an Oscar for its star, I believe, Ellen Burstyn. And during the 70s and the 80s, a lot of sitcoms were spun off from movie properties, sometimes in an unlikely transformation.
1: This wasn't a comedy. It was
2: not a comedy. It's a, not a grim movie, but it, was it, is a good a, seller. it is It is a drama about a woman who's trying to raise a child uh, recently widowed, and it uh, deals with issues of domestic violence. I mean, it's not, not
0: a sitcom. You wouldn't think that this would be material for a sitcom, but clearly the producers saw something in this Dramatic film that had serial comic moments, that it's one of those rare cases where the success of the television show, Nine Seasons, eclipsed the relative success of the feature film. Absolutely. So many, many people grew to know and love Allison aren't aware. And there's two words to explain that. Vic Tabak. He's the glue that brings the two together because Vic Tabak's character of Mel, the owner of the diner, appeared in both the feature film and... The series, as did Alfred Lutter in the pilot as the son, Tommy, before he was
2: waylaid by adolescence and a new Tommy, Philip McKean.
1: It's fun to see the pilot and how they first try to translate the film and then the second episode, because first of all, the new Tommy, he has a New Jersey accent. Alfred Lutter does not have a New Jersey accent. And being somebody from New Jersey, it is the first thing I noticed. I go, hey, This kid knows, like, New Jersey a little bit.
2: You've made me feel much better about my Lexington, Massachusetts comment.
1: And the second thing that I noticed was that they changed the opening credits because they take uh, some pieces from the film, from the second episode on, to show Alice is driving cross-country. You aren't exactly sure why because it's it's pretty quick. Her car breaks down in Phoenix, and she's got to get a job and an apartment. And so it's a workplace comedy now.
0: And very much of its time, you had women uh, like Bonnie Franklin and One Day at a Time was another single mother raising children. It was very much the era where we saw women who did not have to be dependent on being married or a man in their life to define them. Certainly Mary Richards in the Mary Tyler Moore show began the decade in that fashion. But the mid 70s saw a lot of that and this series was so successful that it did last for nine seasons. I think Linda Lavin is really terrific in the role. The whole supporting cast. Everyone. uh, uh, It was
1: three single women. Yes. Were the lead three working
2: women, Sing,
1: but single. They yes. they, they had different you know attitudes towards men because they were approaching middle age and you know. But also they,
2: very much, I mean, very much a true blue collar sitcom, which influenced later shows like Roseanne, and gave the world the phrase "kiss my grits," Kiss my yes,
1: right in the pilot,
2: yes, twice. Holly <laughs> Holiday as Flo, who actually was briefly spun off into her own show, and
0: then there's Beth Howland. Who came to the the series after having been on Broadway in shows like Company, Stephen Sondheim's Company. So a lot of theater people know her from that, but she really redefined her career, and it led to lots of appearances on future Tony Award shows, too.
1: This is a, a three-disc collection. A, a three-disc collection. a lot of
0: Alice. With a lot of Alice. All the episodes from season one. Blue uh, Plate special. And uh, fans have been asking for this series for a long time, so we're delighted to be bringing it their way. Dan, why don't you tell us about some of the special guest stars that appear on this series? The one that
2: comes to mind immediately is uh, the episode Sex Education featuring Adam West of Batman fame and... Laura Parker from Dark Shadows.
1: And I would also say Adam West's leisure suit.
2: Oh, yes.
1: That is really the best part. I was watching these and I did not know he made an appearance and they're, you know, a topic of the day at the time was sex education. And so... Uh, in, in the plot of the show, they're like, what's my Tommy learning? Well, I'm going to have the teacher come in. And Adam West comes in with glasses and a leisure suit. And he talks, uh, uh, frankly, about sex with the with the adults.
0: And polyester never looked so good.
1: It did not. And it was
2: America's birthday. Everyone dressed up. <laughs> <laughs>
1: and he wheeled in a 16-millimeter projector to show the sex ed film in the diner.
2: I hope it was a bell and howl, you know. <laughs> And then uh, other guest stars, uh, Kenneth Mars in the episode Odd Couple.
0: I believe Gordon Jump is in this season. Bernie Koppel. Every episode was beautifully cast. The show had very high production values. It was one of several that Warner Brothers Television... Uh, Had on the air as hit sitcoms of the year, along with Chico and the Man and Welcome Back, Cotter. So it was really a a great time for the studio to enter into the sitcom world with gusto with those kinds of hit series.
2: And if anyone wants to think of other shows that were spun off of any sitcoms spun off of serious
0: movies, Feel free to write to us on Facebook. We'll start a list. Or that lasted for nine seasons. I think oh, a right. lot of, you know, there were attempts to spin off a lot of shows that did not right. succeed. But the success of Alice is really. Uh, Buoyed by the fact that uh, so many people have contacted us wanting us to release the series. And it, this is very much unlike the other
2: sitcom spin off of the Scorsese movie, Raging Jake starring Tony Danza's Jake LaMotta, seldom seen. <laughs>
1: seldom seen enough that that doesn't exist.
2: That's correct.
0: So we'll go from one kind of laughter to another... Another person who flowered on CBS for decades making people laugh is Red Skelton, whose television series on, on the network was such a, a mainstay of programming. But before he became a superstar on television, he was a superstar on the silver screen and one of the biggest comedians of the 40s and early 50s for MGM. And we're proud to bring six of his MGM comedies to DVD, many coming to home video for the very first time. So let's talk about some of those films. I would just say Red Skeleton is a
2: figure who, for one generation, needs no introduction, and for another generation,
0: maybe needs a very large introduction.
1: Let me just say, first off, that as a child, I thought he was Red Skeleton
0: because you saw the all the looney tunes that made that joke but but you didn't think he was Red Buttons or Red Fox how come no one's named red anymore well i red I, Nichols but, and his 5 pennies
1: but what confused me was that red skeleton was also the enemy of the hulk
0: <laughs> well there you go
1: and i wanted to see the red skeleton show because i thought that it was the, starring the villain you of the you mean hulk. the
0: enemy of Captain America i believe <laughs> Or
1: Captain America see
0: red skeleton's uh, screen career uh, began with uh, a, a short appearance in, a, in an RKO film, and then he made some shorts here at Warner Brothers, and then he came to MGM in small parts, eventually graduating to bigger parts, and eventually becoming a full-fledged leading man, and many of his films are available in the Warner Archive collection. And
2: Red Skelton uh, from Vincennes, Indiana, which celebrates, a, has a Red Skelton festival every year. I believe this year it's June 11th, so these films are coming out just at the same time, it's a festival celebrating clowns. Red himself was the son of a clown. Red's father died when he was quite young, and Red was literally discovered by the great Ed Wynn selling newspapers. And Ed Wynn took him under his wing and introduced him to the show business life. Ed Wynn, of course, is the great comedian, comic
0: clown who also is the father of Keenan Wynn. And best known to people as the I Love to Laugh. <laughs> person in Mary Poppins that was one of the last things he did
1: so these six films sort of come at an interesting uh, conjunction of, of his career right or an interesting point because he was coming out of films and at the beginning of these six films he was he was on a radio show and then was yeah. transitioning to television.
0: He had a hit radio series all through the 40s, and his MGM screen appearances went from having smaller roles to eventually carrying the lead. So we start with 1948's uh, Southern Yankee, which is really red entering what I consider the zenith years with the quality went in before the movies went out. And this is, is a wonderful film that is reminiscent of the Buster Keaton film, The General... And I think that's a a running theme in a lot of these films. Some of them are influenced by Keaton, and some of them are direct remakes. Watch the Birdie, which we'll talk about in a minute, is somewhat of a remake of The Cameraman. But Keaton served as an advisor on a lot of these pictures, and he was making in the good old summertime at MGM in 1949 during the making of some of these films. So he was very much a presence, and Edward Sedgwick directed... Some of them and served as a script advisor on another of them. So there is very much a Keatonian, if that's a word, influence, which is dealt with in. (laughs) Busterian? This is dealt with in a documentary called Buster Keaton So Funny It Hurt, which is on our. Buster Keaton MGM Years uh, DVD set that's available through Warner Home Video. There's a a set that has The Cameraman and Spite Marriage and Free and Easy, Buster Keaton at MGM, and in that documentary, which is by Kevin Brownlow, and Patrick Stanbury, the whole issue of Keaton's influence on Skelton and those years is dealt with in that documentary. So for people who know that documentary from its DVD release and also from seeing it on television, they can really finally get to see the films themselves that are excerpted in there. And and I would say,
2: you know, if you're a Keaton completist, you need to give these films a view because there's a number of very carefully constructed comedic sequences that, that are, are unmistakably the work
0: of Buster Keaton. And those are dealt with in that documentary. They show the scenes as originally done by Keaton in, in the films at early days, and then as reconstructed by Skelton in these later films. But they really thrive on their own. And, and let's, let's talk about each of them individually. Matt, what did you think of a Southern Yankee?
1: It's interesting, you know, because Keaton and Skelton had uh, two different approaches to their man-child characters, Underplay right? Underplay and overplay. Oh, yes, exactly. And so, in Southern Yankee, it's it's interesting, you know, because uh, Red Skelton is playing the bumbling man-child. Uh, who's working as a, a bellboy or a busboy or whatever, the, the, a bellhop. I, I, you know, I don't know the technical term. guy who picks up luggage and carries it at a hotel in St. Louis during the Civil War. And a lot of the union uh, officers are staying in this hotel, and he keeps pitching himself because he wants to be a spy. But of course everybody thinks he's an idiot, which, which he is. But through a series of circumstances, he actually finds himself becoming the great spy he always dreamed of and bumbles his way across the lines into the, the southern uh, states and proceeds to pretty much help win the war. That's the basic story. And, and you know, like, so he he sort of uh, bumbles his way into getting a girl as well.
0: And the yes, girl, and quite a girl. It yeah, happens to be the still-ravishing Arlene Dahl, who co-starred with Skelton in, in this film, Watch the Birdie, which we'll talk about in a moment, and then also in Three Little Words, where she played Eileen Percy, the future wife of Harry Ruby. Southern Yankee also features Professor Quatermass himself.
2: Brian dunleavy <laughs>
1: but it, it's got some really funny gags. It I does. thought that and it sets the stakes high. So you're you're with this character. This is this is a this was a, a funny a funny film. It's because
0: a very funny film, and it's it was a big hit in its time, and uh, a wonderful way to lead off this collection of six skeleton films coming to DVD. The next film, chronologically, would be, in fact, what we've been hinting about, Watch the Birdie, which is a reworking of Keaton's The Cameraman. And in The Cameraman, Keaton played a newsreel photographer. And in this film, Mr. Skelton plays not one, not two, but three roles, himself, his father, and his grandfather, and all the activity surrounds a camera shop. Which had special meaning for me, having grown up working.
2: In a camera shop
1: except that you never stole a customer's uh, equipment to go and try and be like a paparazzi
2: well maybe <laughs> we had consignment sometimes you know we would want to shoot some super 8 on the weekend
0: that is the basic plot of this film and and Skelton's aspirations to be more than just a family employee leads to all sorts of misadventures and some phenomenal uh, sight gags
1: Bing familiar with the cameraman, it's it's interesting to see how they try to rework some of the physical shticks. You know, Keaton, I mean, you could almost, you could see the hand of Keaton in a lot of the, you know, like in the dressing room scene is particularly uh, reminiscent of the cameraman, and, and still funny.
0: There's another gag which we won't spell for the audience that involves the christening of a battleship, which is uh, directly replicated from the cameraman.
1: But the gag that, which is the whole final sequence, it involves a, uh, and I don't want to really ruin anything, but it's it's uh, a fantastic physical sequence all based around this very strange construction vehicle <laughs> yes. that's high off the ground. It's like a second, it's like a car that's listed second story so it can hold things underneath. And I mean, they work that gag so well all the way to the end of the film that you're just like, you know, that's that just really stands out.
0: I would be remiss if I didn't mention also that the the second leading lady in this movie who's playing the, the bad girl uh, was the the lovely Ann Miller, who who was a dear friend of mine, and uh, she loved Red Skelton. They were very good friends. They actually worked together I was on gonna say, in a number two of other years. occasions. And uh, they're uh, they're really terrific. The chemistry of everyone in this film is really wonderful, and I think fans are really going to be thrilled that it's available. And am I mistaken? Was uh, Ivan Torres
2: involved in the screenplay? Mm-hmm. Well, there's an interesting fact. Ivan Torres of Doctari
0: fame and underwater adventure.
1: Oh yeah. Well, he was definitely above water in this one.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Next up we have nineteen fifties The Yellow Cabman, and this is my particular favorite of of all six of these movies. I think this is an underrated comedy gem, and uh, Skelton is, is tremendous in it, and I think they really tried to be very, very clever in this movie on many levels.
2: For me, uh, it was very reminiscent of the, uh, the Fred McMurray uh, after Midnight professor, not in a bad way, in a very good way, where you had a bumbling inventor whose invention sort of gets away with him from pratfall to pratfall.
1: But what's interesting is that a later film would have taken that, you know, like flubber or whatever, and, and the plot would have revolved.
2: Around the substance instead of the person.
1: Yeah, but right. it's, instead it's just him and the the, the substance is secondary. But, uh, again, there's always – there's just these great set pieces in this one. And uh, this is the one with the the home show, right? hmm I mean, like that – was fantastic on multiple levels. First of all, there's you know, a, a big climactic sequence in this uh, convention, a home show, and one of my favorite gags, and I'm totally ruining it, and you can't don't stop Don't do it. Me. Don't
2: do it. Just say Please he's a human it. Looney Tunes.
1: Spoiler! spoiler convince somebody to do it, to, to, to watch it, because it made me laugh for like five minutes, is that he goes out an exit door and into a wall, because it's a display of exit doors that you can buy for your building.
2: I think Human Looney Tunes covered that and left the surprise.
1: But the the Looney Tunes, like, it would have just been an exit door into a wall. Like, this was, it was like, because it takes you a moment, he runs into a wall, and then you're like, oh, that's because it's a fake door.
0: Now, it's very interesting that you would make an analogy to, to animation, because, in fact, this film holds a very unique place in cinema history in that it was scored, musically scored, by Scott Bradley, who wrote all of the music for the MGM cartoons, the very distinctive famous music that you heard in the Tom and Jerry cartoons, and a lot of the Tex Avery cartoons. He occasionally contributed a few uh, pieces of his music to other feature films, but he actually scored this entire feature, and it's notable for that. And I think that is an ingredient that Contributes to the different sensibility of this movie that sets it apart and makes it all the more funny because Bradley was a tremendously talented individual, but the studio didn't allow him very many opportunities to work in feature films because he was so busy with the cartoons. And they specifically requested him to be assigned to this picture, and I think it contributes to the overall mirth of the movie, and it's just a terrific comedy waiting ripe for discovery or rediscovery, depending if you've seen it or not.
2: We would be remiss
0: not to mention his co-stars, Gloria De Haven, Walter Slezak, Edward Arnold. It's a great cast, and there's a lot of wonderful supporting players as well. All these films are beautifully cast and very well written. And the next film, on uh, going chronologically, is actually not an entire comedy, but a change of pace for Red Skelton, it's The Clown, which was released at the end of 1952. And this is a remake of The Champ, which came out in 1931, taking the Wallace Beery uh, prize fighter character, who was down on his luck, the son had been played by Jackie Cooper, and rewriting the screenplay so that the character is a down-on-his-luck Clown. clown. With Jane Greer playing his ex wife, and Tim Considine, who would later rise to fame in many Disney works, playing the young son of the clown Dodo. The mechanics of the clowning life that the film shows, which is
2: something that Skelton knew quite well, you know, but from Coney Island to the early days of TV, are very fascinating, very engaging, along with what ultimately is a quite poignant story.
1: I saw this one, I didn't watch them chronologically, and this one I watched last. And it took me back because I wasn't expecting this, and I wasn't expecting the tone, because it's, it's to me, this is the one that stands out as being very different than the other five. Very mm-hmm. much so.
0: And interestingly, was one of the first, if not his first uh, movie ever to... Come out in home video in the very early '80s, uh, in the early days of MGM home video. This was the one that they selected.
1: To me, this one kind of had its clown cake and ate it too, <laughs> because you saw him doing his work and his, his, you know, his clown art. But the character had uh, a really a, a terrible drinking problem, and uh, he had it was in a very codependent relationship with his much more mature 12-year-old child.
0: In the caretaker, caregiver position, Mm -hmm. which was, you know, Francis Marion's screenplay for The Champ was really quite groundbreaking in 1931. Here you have two decades later, remakes were quite common at that time, as they certainly are now as well. But this was coming when Skelton was really establishing his footprint in television, so... At MGM in 1952, he was doing Lovely to Look At, which was a big budget musical that we have available from Warner Archive Collection, where he was one of six big stars in a Technicolor extravaganza, and then there's this small... Dramatic film with comedic moments where he is clowning, but it's really an expression of him wanting to spread his wings and try different things while weekly he was appearing on television at the same time. So it's very interesting from a historical perspective.
1: The the television sequences that they showed, uh, you know, they were small bits, but by having this sort of melodramatic story behind them. They add like a, a weight to the performance the the television performances that give them an energy that, when you just see maybe clips uh, of these performances themselves uh, it doesn't it doesn 't resonate as much, but I found them fascinating uh, to see like these these early days of television and how you know bring hope to this new generation of performers and also I, do, I just want to say at the very beginning when they have him doing his uh, act at the end of, like, the, you know, fun house at the steeplechase, uh, it made me never, ever want to get in a time machine and go on that ride. <laughs> because when you came out of the fun house, there was Red Skelton with uh, a, yeah. Yeah, I thought that a, was an electric the, cattle yeah, prod. Yeah,
2: I kind of sympathized with the guy that slugged him.
1: I was like, this is my nightmare, and everybody's laughing at you, and he's... he's uh, well, like, it's Eric like a, those
2: street performers down on Venice Beach who think it's funny to walk behind you making fun of how you walk. I mean, that's hilarious. Yeah, because you hilarious. A
1: prod, and jets of air to make your dress go up.
2: Well, that, you know, who doesn't like that?
1: Well, I would definitely like to be in the audience, I just didn't want to be uh, somebody coming oh, out of that, the ride.
2: But that air is quite cooling.
1: That was actually horrifying to me, but it was... Uh, I don't know. There was just there was a lot to this movie that was, uh, you know, affecting in a much different way than than the other films. It added up to something I wasn't expecting.
0: And sadly, the film was dismissed when it came out because people said, "Oh, this is a remake," and they're they the same year there had been uh, other remakes that were befalling a similar fate where people were dismissing them. And I think this gives people a chance to rediscover. Uh this this is a film that's been out and on, on VHS years ago so it's not that it's been hidden from view it's been on television but we're hoping that the new DVD is is a good chance for people who haven't and seen it to get it. if you watch it, has it has
2: in it. sequence with
0: his other output
2: at the time you see that this was a change of pace where he was you know trying to use that clown persona in a good way and also he was sort of part of a series of films at the time where he is you know he's not really doing remakes there I would just consider them all Homages to
0: the films that that affected him as a young person, and this film very differently because it wasn't someone else's comedy. Yeah, this was a dramatic film that was reworked to to, to fit his uh, inestimable talents, and uh, really quite a fine film at, at that. In 1953. We saw Half a Hero, which is a domestic sitcom almost. What's what's the name for this genre? The the onslaught of the suburbs comedy. Absolutely, and his leading lady is Gene Hagen, fresh from her Casablanca Osc- comedy. <laughs> yeah, fresh from her Oscar-nominated role as Lena Lamont in Singing in the Rain, one of the greatest comic performances ever put on film. They make a really good couple in this film. Mm-hmm. Matt, what did you think of Half a Hero?
1: It had a very uh, interesting message of its time. You know, this is post-war; people were moving out to the suburbs. And uh, well,
2: Matt, it is a cul de sac comedy,
1: right? I, I'm just, am just, I'm setting the stage here for my brilliant comment about how uh, Red Skelton works as a writer for, uh, you know, like a general interest magazine, and the publisher is very into thrift and what makes a good and proper home. But I would have to say that that but guy you think paying rent. Yeah, paying rent, paying rent, and uh, being thrifty and saving all your money. That guy turned out uh, to completely not have his finger on the pulse of America, and Red Skelton did, because the moral of the story is that you build a good society by taking on debt.
2: That's it. That uh, well, you floored me. So now I have to think about the film in a whole new way.
1: I I, mean, that was because it was like, hey, the best Americans are ones who are fully invested in, uh, you know, coming into these new situations and the new domestic. So you would say that this is a
2: cul-de-sac Keynesian comedy.
1: Yes, there's definitely uh, a a Keynesian element to it. But what's funny is, of course, that these, to us, is a stereotype was brand new. This is new and, and virgin territory for, for comedy. And it reminded me a little bit of the Bob Hope movie. Bachelor, Bachelor in Paradise, Paradise, which was
0: nine years later. But this isn't dealing with bachelorhood. This is dealing with fatherhood no. and. Yeah. and so
1: moving to the suburbs. Absolutely. And
0: that, we should maybe give a little bit
2: clearer setup here.
1: Okay, I'm sorry. No, I, that's I got quite. I just, you, yeah, I, I just went right to the heart of the matter.
2: Red Skelton plays a magazine writer who. ...ultimately has to cover up the fact that he's moved to the suburbs from his boss.
1: Yeah, or he'll get fired. Yeah. And so he does it by pretending to go... Uh, undercover and write about the suburbs, but he's really writing about his hometown.
0: And that's where the similarity to Bachelor in Paradise also uh, comes in, is Bob Hope's character in Bachelor in Paradise is masquerading as a suburbanite when he's really writing a book about how Americans live in the suburbs. So there definitely is a similarity between those pictures, but from very different vantage points of different decades.
1: This had a lot of good comedy because you you watch... Uh, him go over his head and that he's spinning out of control and to me a comedic high point is when his boss invites himself over for dinner but uh red skelton's character doesn't have the heart to tell him that he has moved to the suburbs so he goes right into his old apartment with hilarity ensuing we
0: should definitely mention that half a hero is one of the skelton films making its debut on home video never before available and uh, remastered for this DVD and then we move to the last I
1: was just I just wanted to end that with half a hero is twice the deal
0: oh well done the final film that Red Skelton made under his MGM contract was The Great Diamond Robbery, which was made at the end of 1953 and released very early in the early January weeks of 1954. And this is a caper comedy, which co-stars comedian Cara Williams.
1: This one is a, a little, you know, because he's the, uh, um, the man-child again, but, but a savant. He plays a savant who uh, works for a, a big jeweler a jeweler who has a diamond that's just too big to sell. So the whole crux of it is that he has to split the diamond. And uh, Red Skelton's character uh, is worried that the experts that he's calling in will bungle the job and that he's the one who knows the diamond best. But there's uh, criminals who uh, pose as his long-lost family, and so they're trying to get him, dupe him, into uh splitting the diamond for them for their financial gain
0: and this is a very cute film it's very efficient it's got a brisk pacing to it and it tells its story very effectively i think
2: i also it's sort of uh, it's a little bit off beat a little bit off but also you can see subsequent caper comedies definitely taking their cue From the blueprint that this film is laying down also personally for me the film co-stars one of my favorite film actors james whitmore
0: who is terrific in the picture as also is dorothy stickney who is mostly known for stage performances and was the leading lady in the famous play life with father but uh, she gives a great comedic performance. She's what well, she wasn't on, did do very many films considering how famous she was on the stage. And she's really terrific as the woman who plays Red's quote unquote mother mm-hmm. from his uh, adoptive family. But that's part of the plot twist that you'll discover as you see this rollicking comedy.
1: Let's just say. That to me, the more interesting note is that Red Skelton finds himself inexplicably attracted to what he thinks is his own sister.
0: Yes. <laughs> and that's the character that Cara Williams plays as part yeah. of this family that tries to dupe Red. Finally, when uh, things uh, reveal themselves as the plot reveals oh, itself. spoiler!
2: I let my guard down. One thing I'm we can sorry. say is
0: that if it's an MGM comedy from the 1950s, you can pretty much count on a happy ending. Yes, So absolutely. I think we can say that without it being any kind of a spoiler. But uh, <laughs> she's terrific in this film, and she also has a chance to sing. She sings... Uh, Who Do You Think I Am, which was originally in Broadway Rhythm in 1944, which is also a Warner Archive title. And so it's nice that they were able to work in a little bit of a musical sequence. And uh, these films are all very effective in utilizing great talent from the studio. There's a lot of nice supporting players in this film as well. This is uh, another one making its debut on DVD as part of this skeleton sextet.
1: Yeah, we've got a whole passel of comedy.
0: That's right. So that wraps it up for this week as we salute Skelton and hail the arrival of Alice Season 1. So be sure to tune in next time (laughs) as we're in a television mode talking about (laughs) Skelton and Alice. Look for our next Water Archive Collection podcast, and we thank you very much for listening. I'm George Feltenstein.
1: I'm Matt Patterson.
0: I'm DW Friday. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.